Tonight, uh, we are going to be speaking about Taiwan's place in the U.S.-China relationship amid new Chinese military exercises around Taiwan in the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit there last week. Our guest tonight is Michael Swain, director of the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute. So, Dr. Swain, welcome. And to start you off, do you think that the United States and China are on a road to war right now over Taiwan? Well, first of all, thank you very much, John, for inviting me to be part of this uh, webinar and uh, and to uh, talk about this topic. Uh, do I think the U.S. and China are on the road to conflict? Um, I think that the U.S. and China are on a path towards a worsening uh military and political situation in the Western Pacific that could produce a more serious crisis than we've seen thus far. And the danger in that is that the chances of some kind of conflict, therefore, would increase. Um, I don't think there's been a deliberate final decision by the Chinese to use force on Taiwan and to precipitate a war with the United States, which I think that would do. Um, but I think that the assumptions that both sides are working under right now are not conducive to trying to reach some kind of more stable understanding regarding Taiwan and their security relationship in the Western Pacific. So let's zoom in on Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last week. You know, it was it was extremely controversial here in Washington. There were a lot of people, including the Biden administration, urging her not to go. Uh, and some defenders of her trip have argued that whether senior U.S. government figures are going to visit Taiwan is a matter that ought to be decided between the United States government and the Taiwanese government, and that China really has no business uh, as part of that. What do, what do you make of that view? Well, I think that view is basically a distortion of what has been a decades-long um, understanding that the United States has had uh, with China about Taiwan and the limitations that the United States would place on its relationship with Taiwan. Um, the One China policy is a policy that, that states explicitly that the United States will not have state-to-state um, -state or diplomatic or official relations with Taiwan at a senior level at the very least. And uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip violated many of those assurances. Um, she she uh, characterized it as an official visit. She flew over to Taiwan on a U.S. military aircraft, similar to what the president of the United States uses. Uh, she was treated in Taiwan as if it's a kind of state visit. She referred to Taiwan as a country as she spoke. In Taiwan, the United States, of course, does not recognize Taiwan as a country. Um, and 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 when she came back, she sort of reinforced this message uh, in her comments to the press afterwards to try to defend what I think was really an indefensible uh, action on her part. Now, some people have said that, well, this has happened before. Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House back in the 1990s, he he visited Taiwan as well. Well, yes, that's true that he did visit Taiwan. Um, he did it very briefly. He did it after a trip to Beijing. And he did not cast it and frame it in the same way 
that Nancy Pelosi did. And that's really a, a statement of how the, the, the situation, particularly on the U.S. side, has evolved since the 1990s as the United States increasingly, in my view, hollows out or eviscerates the one China policy. And the Chinese themselves act in ways that eviscerate their commitment to a peaceful unification as a top priority. So we've got both sides really um, doubling down on deterrence messaging, uh, the worst casing of a situation, and sending doubts to the other side about the uh, credibility of their long-term understanding about, about Taiwan. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little more about this. You know, it seems like you're saying that the status quo on Taiwan that's held for several decades now is falling apart both between the United States, uh, both on the United States side and on the PRC side, uh, you know, maybe say a little bit more about that. And also, like, what what role does the the third party here, the Taiwanese government, have in that? You know, are the, are they a push factor here, or is this really a, a almost like a bilateral crisis? No, it's not a simply bilateral crisis for sure. The Taiwan government and the Taiwan public are certainly playing a role here. Um, what what has occurred is that over the years. Um, on the U.S. side, you have had the United States has gradually shifted its position on one China in the way I described it previously to take actions that indicate or suggest that it believes that the best kind of thing is for Taiwan to remain an independent uh, entity from the mainland, uh, basically indefinitely. Uh, and that this is in American interests. I mean, this has been stated explicitly by a uh, Defense Department official in front of the Congress that Taiwan is a strategic, well, I shouldn't say he said that explicitly. He said Taiwan is a strategic node in the defense against China in the Western Pacific. Uh, the suggestion, of course, being very clear that uh, you don't want to give up this strategic node to China. You want to make sure China cannot in any way reunify with that with that uh with the island that that would present a threat to the security of the United States and the western pacific that is diametrically opposite to the US one china position so the administration tried to walk back that statement it hasn't repeated it um i think probably some of the administration believe it was a mistake but nonetheless it was stated and there was not and has not been directly refuted in the sense that it hasn't been stated that Taiwan, no, is we don't regard Taiwan as a strategic asset. We don't think that Taiwan must be, remain separate from China under any conditions, even a peaceful, uncoerced resolution. Uh, that That is what the uh, One China policy has stated in the past. And so what, what the U.S. has been doing is moving in that direction of reinforcing its contacts with Taiwan, raising them up higher and higher in the sort of semi-official slash official level, redefining or wanting to redefine some of the entities involved here to make them look more like that they are sovereign states interacting, trying to intervene in uh, the whole issue of diplomatic contests between Beijing and Taipei over representation, trying to discourage other countries from recognizing Beijing over Taiwan which went on very much in the Trump administration and has not really been pushed back against in the Biden administration. So you've got this whole litany of these different types of 
oh, and Taiwan is now invited to different kinds of um, organizations and different kinds of meetings that again move closer to the idea that it's a that it's a sovereign state. It's regarded, I mean, it's being proposed now in the Congress that it be officially designated as a non-NATO ally. Um, now that was a 2002 statement that the Congress had made as well. They made it back then, but now they're making it again. They want to codify it in something called the Taiwan Relations Law. And that would be an extension of the Taiwan Relations Act, but one that would very clearly undermine even further the one China policy. So that's what's been going on on the US side. Now on the, on the Chinese side, you've had this increasing sense of China's desire to resolve the issue of the separation of China from Taiwan. Xi Jinping has made comments about wanting to have the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation occurring by the middle of the century, that that is supposed to coincide with the unification of China with Taiwan. He hasn't explicitly laid out a timetable per se, but he's made suggestions that, well, if re rejuvenation and the unification goal are both very close to each other, then if you're saying rejuvenation has to be attained by a certain date, aren't you saying that Taiwan's unification with the mainland must be done by that date as well? And that's been left as a kind of unanswered question for the Chinese. Um, they also haven't been repeating that over and over again and been saying there's a timeline. But nonetheless, again, as with the US, this is a suggestion that they're moving in that direction. They're strengthening their military, certainly, in the way that it can operate against Taiwan. They haven't yet acquired the amphibious capabilities that would allow them to really conduct a kind of classic D-Day invasion of Taiwan, but they've acquired a very potent military force, and we've seen that in action in the last couple of weeks. Um, Taiwan is couldn't be circled by China militarily. China could attempt to institute blockades of Taiwan. It has the capability probably to do that through mines and through ships and aircraft. That would present a major, major crisis that would likely lead to conflict. So people are asking in, in the US, what exactly is China's game plan here? Are they really committed to peaceful reunification? Now, China just came out with a, a white paper on Taiwan where it repeatedly stated that it wouldn't that it seeks peaceful reunification. It's still committed to that as a top priority and will do so. But for many people, it's hard to square that peg with a continued amount of military type of pressure on Taiwan. Now, I understand why PRC is doing this, but nonetheless, it is creating doubts in the minds of a lot of people as to how committed China really is to peaceful unification. Now, in all of this, we've seen a sea change in the political situation on Taiwan. Uh, the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party that stood for Taiwan as being part of China, but under a Republic of China government, not under the PRC, that, that viewpoint has weakened considerably. The Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party in Taiwan today is no longer the dominant party. Uh, the Democratic Progressive Party, the party of the current president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, is to all intents and purposes at this point in time, moving to be the majority party. And that party is not by any means in favor of Taiwan and China unification. They are in favor of Taiwan remaining separate from uh, China indefinitely. And that and, and the public as well in Taiwan has moved from a position where there was a significant number of Chinese in Taiwan who believed 
that ultimately it might be possible to reunify with the mainland, that this was something that could occur. They didn't want it now. They were unsure. They were looking at this very pragmatically, et cetera, et cetera. But today, although the Taiwanese public is still pretty pragmatic, they are increasingly hostile to the idea of any kind of reunification, at least with the PRC, if not with any Chinese government. Um, they don't trust the Chinese government after what's happened in Hong Kong. And they don't trust it after what's happened in Xinjiang and, and other places. So the Taiwan public is also very much um, hostile to, to China uh, on, on that sort of question, or at least extremely um, suspicious of China's motivations and would not really support the Guomindang moving in a very strong position to try to have talks, say, on reunification. That is really, at this point in time, an impossibility. So you've had all of these shifts occurring now, all of which are weakening the bases for continued stability on the Taiwan question. Yeah, so one of the things you mentioned uh, was, you know, the idea advanced by a, a DOD official of, you know, ta Taiwan as a uh, strategic node, uh, you know, for the United States in the Pacific. Uh, and, and, you know, there's been a, a recent uh, major book uh, that's gotten a lot of talk in defense circles in Washington, uh, Strategy of Denial, by uh, Elbridge Colby, who led the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, uh, who argued that uh, Taiwan is, is basically the decisive point for the balance of power in Asia, that if Taiwan were to fall, uh, it would enable China to begin picking off uh, members of the U.S. alliance system, other states in China's neighborhood, one by one, uh, establishing hegemony in East Asia, and then through that, gaining uh, enormous economic leverage over the United States. And he says, well, if, if this chain that I'm arguing for holds, this is something the United States should be willing to fight to avoid. What do you make of that uh, that argument? Well, I don't make a whole lot of it. Um, I think, you know, Elbish Colby is a defense analyst. He's concerned primarily with military balances. He's defining the interests of the United States and the security of the Western Pacific almost entirely in terms of a, mili the military balance of power between China and the United States, and B, assumptions about Chinese motivations that are based more on realist theory than they are on China's actual views and statements. Um, and his assumption is that China is a rising power. As a rising power, it's a power maximizer. It wants to displace the United States. Um, that is its intention, and it can't be shaken from that intention other than by military means. And that if we don't stand against the Chinese at Taiwan, bring Taiwan into the defense perimeter of the United States, basically declare Taiwan an ally, throw out the one China policy and militarize the situation in the Western Pacific. If we don't do all that, then China will take Taiwan, threaten Japan, maybe take the Philippines, move on throughout the Western Pacific and we're cooked. I mean, that's that's the kind of narrow, one-dimensional sort of assessment that's being made here without any real attention to what the incentives would be politically for the Chinese to actually attack Taiwan, to take that risk, and then to go on to attacking other countries in the region, 
and basically wreaking havoc across the region or coercing the region in a very direct ways to be subjugated to China and to dominate it and throw the U.S. out of the region. I mean, it's a, it's a very seductive, very, if I dare say it, simplistic assessment about where we are and what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, maybe just to, to follow up on that, you know, it, it does seem like Chinese military power and Chinese power generally uh, is rising quite dramatically. You know, folks even suggest that, you know, they have the world's biggest navy, you know, or, or certainly that they're on the way to that. Uh, you know, doesn't that give them something like a capability to to do those kinds of things? Uh, and 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 you were also kind of saying you think their intentions uh, and the things that they're saying aren't in line with that kind of maximalist vision. Well, sure. I mean, it's it's the, the Chinese have been building their military. There's absolutely no question. And they've been building it at a steady rate. It's been roughly a steady rate of roughly around two percent of GDP for years now. And they have invested in the right kind of areas to increase their overall capabilities as a modern, more sophisticated force. They've done that in their Air Force. They've done that in their Navy. They've done that in the cyber realm, the satellite realm. So yeah, they are a rising power economically, militarily. And they have growing amounts of influence and they have interests in Asia that they want to defend. That does not mean that they are about to goose step across Asia with military force, taking over different areas of the region going well beyond their claims to sovereignty over certain parts of the Western Pacific, such as Taiwan, islands in the South, in the South China Sea, et cetera, they are not in a position militarily, despite their advances and despite the concerns and uncertainties that that creates, they are not in a position to be able to determine militarily the future of the region. And the United States is not in a supplicant position or in an inferior position on that score either. And neither are its critical allies, particularly Japan and South Korea. So this idea that China is just going to use its military to intimidate the region, take over the region and, and dominate it in some kind of 19th century imperialist way, I think really does not do justice to the more complex aspects of what the problem is that we're looking at here. And the problem is a worsening security dilemma. It's a worsening situation in which the previous primacy of the United States in the maritime theater in the Western Pacific is eroding. And the United States has not yet developed a response to that that can still maintain stability. And the threat here is not that the Chinese will go berserk and start attacking everybody. The threat is that as you reach a level of parity or you reach a level of rough, rough equality between the two sides, they then are more likely to miscalculate. China could become overconfident regarding Taiwan or regarding what it regards as some other provocation in the South China Sea and use military displays or some kind of military action. And the United States could overreact to that out of a sense that it wants to show China and other countries that it hasn't lost its, its, its edge its leverage. So you have the possibility of a very unstable balance in the Western Pacific between China and the United States. It's that balance and that instability and the interactive nature of the two countries 
in what they're doing about this situation that is a threat. The threat is that reciprocal involvement, one to the other. And it's not nearly enough to say, oh, the Chinese are a great threat to Asia, or the United States is not a threat to Asia. I mean, both of those are wrong from the perspective of the other. And so they're both being engaging in this kind of zero-sum worst-case assessments about the situation in the region. And that's what really is the danger, as I said. So we got a question from the audience from Jennifer, who asks, uh, do you believe that Pelosi's visit was a legacy visit? And also, uh, what do you make of the idea that once China uh, threatened the visit, that it was in our best interest not to cave in or otherwise appear weak? What are your thoughts there? Well, I, I can't really comment on whether or not Nancy Pelosi did this for legacy reasons. I mean, it's quite possible she did. Uh, she, she could very well be facing stepping down as Speaker of the House. She has made her reputation internationally and to some extent nationally as well um, over the years through her support for human rights, her criticism of the PRC government. She has engaged with PRC officials. Um, she has tried to have communication with them. But I think she also wants to be seen as a very strong symbol and proponent of human rights and democracy in the Western Pacific. And so for her, you know, the Chinese trying to influence the situation or even the administration trying to really uh, deter her or dissuade her from going is just not acceptable. And so she decided she wanted to uh, to take this uh, you know, visit and um, that it was good for Taiwan, good for the U.S., which I disagree with. And what was the second half of the question? Uh, whether even if even with all that said, once China threatened, uh, started making threats about the visit, that we should have just stuck with it because it would have made us look weak to back down. Well, I don't I don't accept that argument because the administration knew for quite some time, I think, that Pelosi was planning to go to Taiwan. It knew that this situation was going to cause a major problem. I believe that people, at least in the professional staffs within the State Department, probably in the Defense Department, knew that this was something that could really provoke a major crisis. And yet the administration did not really apply influence or pressure on either either Nancy Pelosi or Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, for this not to occur. It was too, it was very cautious about it. it. If you remember, Biden said initially, well, the military doesn't think it's a good idea. He basically punted and tried to sort of blame it on the military and have the military really not want to do it and hope Pelosi would then not go. When it was very clear she wouldn't do that, that she was going to go, then the administration began to change its tune. And it began to say, well, what she's doing is really not that different. And the Chinese are really, if they really react in a strong way, they'll be overreacting. And really, there's nothing to see here. And so let's just, uh, you know, not overreacting. Let's go back to the status quo ante if we can. Now, I, and, then, and then they said, well, since the Chinese have really reacted strongly, then we can't not react to them. But you see, they, they created a lot of these conditions themselves that, that they allowed to happen, that created this crisis. And then they turned around and said, well, we can't back down in the face of China's response. And I think that is, that's not to me a very winnable argument. 
Yeah, so there's kind of a similar argument that has been made by some defenders of the uh, the Pelosi trip that, you know, to, to speak about her action as a provocation is to kind of minimize Beijing's agency uh, in all of this, you know, that it was really China's reaction that's the crisis. You know, they're the ones that are shooting the missiles. They're the ones who, you know, are expressing a desire to, to take over uh, an island that they they don't control that, you know, you could argue historically China, the mainland has only intermittently controlled that, you know, that the blame for the crisis is really, you know, on a kind of Chinese revanchism uh, toward Taiwan. What do, you, what do you make of that? Well, I again, you you have to go back to what has been the understanding between Beijing and Washington that has existed now for at least 40 years, um, ever since normalization, if not longer, that there would be a U.S. policy on the U.S. side of acknowledging the Chinese position that Taiwan is a part of China, not challenging that position, pledging not to have diplomatic or official types of contact with Taiwan, having only cultural and economic interactions and lower level, some lower level to government to government interactions, but not high level, not diplomatic. Certain cabinet members have been uh, prohibited from traveling to Taiwan in fealty to this understanding. Now, the Chinese regarded, put aside for the time being right now what the Chinese have done, which they've contributed as well, as I've said before, but the Chinese regarded what the United States has been doing as something that fundamentally alters this understanding. And for the Chinese, the Taiwan issue is not just a question of what they'd prefer to have. It's a critical issue that relates to regime legitimacy, to the very underpinnings of the, of the PRC state, because they stand for nationalism. They stand for the reunification of China, overcoming all the history of imperialist predations on China, you name it. Now, we can all criticize those views and say, well, the Chinese need to get over all that. And they need to just recognize that Taiwan is really now an independent state and, and they should just accept that. Well, good luck. The Chinese are not going to accept that. They, will, they just issued a white paper that makes it crystal clear that they're not going to accept that. And so is our reaction to that to say, well, we ignore all that. And we're going to go ahead and see if Taiwan can move even further away from the mainland and will what? We'll provide the Taiwan with a security guarantee as it does that. I guarantee you, if we do that, we will be at war with China. Yeah, so I, I take it you would be critical then of you know this idea of ending uh, the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity, of not making it explicit to either Taipei or Beijing that we'll attack that that we will that we'll fight uh, for Taiwan. Uh, that you know, because there's a view out there that we should instead make it explicit, like yes, we will defend Taiwan on, and the and the ba the proponents of this are you know that some make a moral argument that like we should stand with the democracy no matter what. Some make a prudential argument that war is less likely to break out right. if our deterrence posture, uh, if our if our threat to go to war is explicit and clear rather and that's, than uncertain. That's, that's, you know, that's basically the Elbridge Colby argument and the argument of Hal Brands and Andrew Krapinovich and other defense analysts who look at this, at this problem. But here's the problem with that argument. The Chinese are so committed to Taiwan and the reunification 
of the country as they see it, that in my view and the view of quite a few other China specialists, they would go to conflict with the United States, even if they thought they might not succeed in doing that, at least in the first go round, if they thought that the United States was now in support of Taiwan's permanent separation and that, and that the United States would protect Taiwan as it moved towards that separation. The Chinese would not sit back and say, oh gosh, the United States has got such overwhelming military power, I guess we can't really do much. No, what they would do is they would respond to that at the very least by increasing even further, which they can do, their military spending, their military capabilities, their pressure on Taiwan, and we would see a very clear shift by the Chinese towards away from peaceful unification towards a forceful resolution of the issue. Is that what the United States wants? I mean, I don't think the United States wants, I don't think the American people want this. They don't want to get into war with China over Taiwan. They want it to be stable. And the best way you can maintain that stability is, yes, you have to keep up deterrence capabilities in significant areas. And the Quincy Institute has written about that recently in a report. Taiwan has to increase its capabilities, but you also have to maintain the credibility of the United States position that it, that it is one China, that there's a one China policy. Now, that's not the Chinese one China principle. The U.S. does not necessarily, the U.S. has taken the position that legally Taiwan's status is still undetermined, but it has not challenged the Chinese view. It straddles that issue. If we make it crystal clear that we support Taiwan's separation, then even if we have a preponderance of military power, the Chinese will either build their power and will be in an open-ended arms race with the Chinese that will have blowback effects all across the region, or they'll go to war. So you can take your choice. We have those two choices. If we pursue the strategy of Elbridge Colby and others who think that all of this can only be measured in terms of military balances. They underestimate and they don't understand what the Chinese think about this issue. So you mentioned uh, the recent report from uh, from the Quincy Institute, uh, you know, a big study of kind of U.S. defense strategy in Asia called active denial. Right. Uh, how, what is that and how does it differ? I mean, especially in the case of Taiwan, how does it differ from the way that we're doing things now? Well, the way that we're doing things now is kind of unclear. Um, we used to have a concept called air-sea battle. Then we had um, more recent concepts that have to do with uh, with deterring China in various ways. Um, and now, as you mentioned, Elbridge Colby has written a book uh, about denial where he really doesn't define a military posture at all. Uh, he talks about the sort of theoretical, hypothetical, um, actions that China might take and how the United States needs to deter those actions, primarily military actions. But he doesn't lay out what that should mean in terms of force posture or whatever. I mean, he just wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs where he argued that that what this means is we have to have a much ma a major increase in, in, in U.S. defense spending in the Western Pacific, and, we, and we'll be able to do that by cutting back on defense spending in Europe, Middle East, et cetera. So we have to focus all of our military in basically most of our military efforts in the Western Pacific. And as I'm saying, that is not the solution to this problem. 
Yeah. And so, so what what is active denial? Oh, I'm like? sorry. <laughs> so active denial, active denial is a concept that that rests upon the idea of a more defensive force posture where you have greater levels of hardening of Japanese, American forces, Taiwan forces. You have greater level of emphasis on interdicting Chinese forces that would leave the mainland to attack Taiwan. In other words, you would have anti-ship, anti-air capabilities that would be focused on dealing with that with those problems and not on escalating to early on attacks on the mainland. It's not based on reasserting American primacy in the region because that is gone and it's unlikely to come back. But it's based upon the idea that U.S. forces could deflect a Chinese attack on Taiwan and hold them off long enough. U.S. regional forces, likely with support from Japan, could hold them off long enough so that you could bring other forces in from outside of the region, where if you bring in external theater forces, U.S. forces, the chances of China being able to take and seize Taiwan drop dramatically. And it's more likely that you would get a face-off with losses on both sides, very significant, but ultimately the Chinese would not be able to take Taiwan. And that kind of a posture, more based on resilience, based on hardening, based on some dispersal, based on anti-ship and anti-air capabilities, not striking targets deep in China, that would be less escalatory, more financially feasible, and more stabilizing in general in the region, if combined with the kind of reassurances on the one China policy and on the understanding with Beijing that I have talked about has been the basis of the US-China stability in the region for decades. So you have to have both the political diplomatic elements of this alongside of the military elements, and you could have an effective active denial strategy that would maintain the stability in the region. Yeah. So just to, to, to follow up on that, you know, I, I, one of the things I was thinking about as I, as I read through that report was if the military dimension of that is successful, even coupled with those political assurances, uh, it still seems to me like you're getting uh, a scenario in which national reunification is not possible, that Taiwan effectively remains separate, you know, and that the kind of talk of re, uh, reunifying by the middle of the century or, or something like that won't be able to happen. And therefore, you know, maybe this strategy too would be unacceptable to Beijing. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, because well, I know I you're talking think, about how to align the political and the military right. levels. Well, as I said in the, in the report, I don't think that Beijing is going to look at this strategy and say, oh boy, this is great. Now we can resolve the Taiwan issue. No, I think they'll, they'll, as I stated, as I wrote, and I wrote that chapter in the report, I think the Chinese will probably look at this, and they've already examined elements of a denial strategy that are in the report. I think they would look at this as a way for the United States to maintain its, its effective deterrence against China at a lower cost financially for the United States in ways that can sustain the separation indefinitely. Because I think many Chinese believe that the United States despite the one China policy and the assurances that used to be based on in that, the United States is basically happy with the current situation. It doesn't really wanna see 
any resolution uh, that would lead to China and Taiwan reunifying, um, even though even though it has said that it's not opposed to the China, to peaceful reunification if it's done uncoerced. It said this in the past, although American officials will not repeat that now. Um, that has been the basis of the understanding in the past. But I think the Chinese are very suspicious of U.S. motivations. Um, so you still have the problem here that the United States has to maintain or reestablish some level of credibility to its, its one China policy. And it's just simply not doing that. Yes, we've got a couple questions from the audience from uh, from Stuart about the scenario of a, a Chinese naval or air blockade uh, of Taiwan. And I know there was a lot of talk this week after some of those exercises, which had, as I understand it, some active uh, training and, and use of weapons happening right, right off of Taiwanese right. ports. Uh, one, could a blockade be an effective Chinese tool for kind of forcing reunification? But then number two, under your strategy of active denial, uh, if China were to say, hey, we're doing the air and naval blockade, how would uh, how would this fit into that? What what would active denial say should should be the response of the Taiwanese, the United States, the Japanese, et cetera? Well, I think an effort to try and establish a blockade around Taiwan would be viewed by the United States as an act of war that it would be an aggressive action designed to deliberately stop commercial transit into and out of Taiwan, to strangle Taiwan, that that would be a direct threat to the security of Taiwan. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, if the United States designates, the president designates, that Taiwan is under a major direct security threat, it is obligated, the administration is obligated to consult with Congress as to how to respond to that. My bet is if that situation under these current circumstances that we face, if the Chinese are foolish enough to try to establish a blockade in the near term, sure, it's gonna challenge the United States because um, the United States might have to take the first move in a kinetic sense in trying to break that blockade. But I think the United States would do that or could come very close to doing that and what that blockade would mean is not successful reunification. It would mean a war between the United States and China. And that, as I said, going back to my previous remarks, that would be a very nasty, very could be prolonged situation. Ultimately, I think the United States would be able to prevail, but it would transform the entire strategic landscape in Asia and I dare say in the world. And I think that's an important point going back to your earlier question. This is not just a simple question of could China achieve reunification or not. The question is, if China resorts to force, to a major use of force to try to either intimidate Taiwan or the United States, or to try to win, seize, and hold Taiwan, we're in a different ballgame. We're not where we are today. We're then in a situation of war prevention or war uh, victory. And that, and that is a very different situation. So what I'm talking about is trying to establish the kind of understandings, the kind of restraint, the kinds of limited capabilities that would allow for political incentives to keep this issue going. Because what the US policy ultimately boils down to is kicking the can down the road in the hopes that over time, developments in either China, 
or Taiwan or the United States will change or evolve to some degree where you could have a more stable long-term situation. The current situation is, I believe, in many ways untenable. The recent, the previous situation of one China and peaceful reunification had delivered to Taiwan decades of security and growth and development with contacts with the mainland and mutual benefits. And now we're both moving in the direction of throwing that out the window. So we've got a, a question in here about uh, the Ukraine. Uh, and, and I'm curious, first off, how how is what's happened in Ukraine shaping how China and Taiwan are thinking about their own possible uh, conflict? And then in particular, to to uh, to follow what our questioner wanted to hear about, you know, the United States has supported uh, Ukraine materially and with a lot of intelligence. And, uh, it, you know, is that something that would happen in the event of a Taiwan scenario? And is that it does how does that factor in to uh, to the Chinese calculations? You know, and I've heard suggestions that it would actually be very different that you know that that even if we wanted to support the Taiwanese, that the Chinese might uh, be able to prevent resupply of uh, of Taiwan in a way that's totally different from Ukraine, where you can basically just drive stuff across the border. Well, yeah, I mean the the, the two situations are vastly different in that respect. I mean Taiwan, as we all know, is an island. It's a hundred miles off the Chinese coast. It's well over a thousand miles from the nearest um, U.S. territory. Um, it's not. It's it's not much less than that to Japanese US bases in Japan. Um, but nonetheless, it's, you know, this the situation is is quite different. And the United States would most likely be challenged, I mean, almost certainly would be challenged by China if it tried to assist Taiwan, if China were attacking Taiwan, you would have a direct conflict there. And the, the difference here is that the United States is more inclined, I don't, that's not the right word, but is has a greater degree of commitment, although it's not unambiguous, it has a greater degree of commitment to Taiwan's security than it ever had to Ukraine's security. The likelihood of the United States intervening in a China, intervening directly in a Chinese attack on Taiwan is much higher than that of the United States intervening directly on the Ukraine conflict with the Russians, much higher. And so if that happens, if the, if the crisis happens on Taiwan in that direction, it is potentially a much more dangerous, in my opinion, crisis than what we see today in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, we could we could end up in that situation. I'm certainly not predicting it. The other thing that I would say about the Ukraine conflict is that the less one lesson that I think should be drawn because the Chinese have drawn this lesson, and that is that. A great power when it clearly conveys a particular national security concern as a, a vital interest, the Russians with Ukraine, and put aside whether or not that's a valid argument for the Russians to be making, but they believe it, or at least Putin does, an argument about Ukraine's importance to Russian national security on its borders, not having NATO extend all the way up to Russian borders in a long border with a NATO uh, member, that is the U.S. has, in the Russian view and in the Chinese view, ignored the Russian sense of that, and the result has been a war in Ukraine. The Chinese look at their 
warnings about the Taiwan situation and about U.S. intervention in somewhat similar ways, that if the United States ignores what the Chinese are saying, ignores their warnings about the situation, and decides it's going to try and, or at least in the Chinese view, try and separate Taiwan from the mainland, the Chinese are going to react with military force. So the Chinese would say, you saw the lesson in, the, in, in Ukraine, and it really led to conflict. Here's the lesson in Taiwan. It's going to lead to conflict there, too. Do you want that? So that is one thing. Now, that, of course, many Americans look at the Ukraine situation and they say, well, we should have just been tougher to begin with. We should have just been really adamant and resolved in defending and in, in committing ourselves to defending Ukraine. And then the Russians would have backed down. Sure, that's easy enough to say. Um, when when you know you're you're sitting there thinking that you've got the uh, preponderance of power and you can dominate the escalation ladder, but that's not necessarily the case. And in the Taiwan situation, it's the same kind of situation. Americans look at this, some Americans, and say, "Well, if we only just tell the Chinese, we mean business. Uh, Taiwan really can't will be defended by us." It's really as a member of Congress once told me. Why don't we put an SSBN, a nuclear-powered submarine, in the Taiwan Strait and just tell the Chinese Taiwan's independent? <laughs> I mean, you know, that kind of an attitude will lead you to a war in the Western Pacific. So we got a question uh, from Cameron in the audience who asks, how much of a role do you think the restrictions on trade between the United States and China launched during the Trump administration and then the reluctance to roll those back have played in kind of accelerating this crisis or agitating the uh, the PRC. What are your thoughts here? Well, I you know I honestly I don't think that the tariffs per se have directly agitated the Taiwan situation, what we're facing today. But I think they have, in general, contributed to this sense that the United States has reacted. To the uh, Chinese policies in whatever area, economic and in other areas to do with Xinjiang, they reacted to it by applying sanctions, which is economic coercion that the United States, of course, blames the Chinese for doing all the time. But the United States uses sanctions, which is economic coercion, more frequently than any other country. So the Chinese just look at this as hypocrisy and they see it as contributing to the, the United States' general view that it doesn't really stand by its word on different issues regarding all kinds of things, including Taiwan, including economics. The United States, for its side, looks at this and says, well, China brought it on itself because China is not a fair player economically. And the Trump administration portrayed China as a predatory economic nation. It just lies, steals, and cheats its way to development. Um, it's only really attained its position because of its theft of American technology. I mean, all these simplistic bromides, these simplistic statements that really ref don't reflect the more much more complex reality that China has cheated in areas. It does steal technology. It has also been a major economic benefit to countries around the world. It has accounted for a third of global economic growth since the middle of, uh, since 2005 or 2006. I can't remember the exact date. So you've got this much more mixed situation. And many countries look at China today and, and see them as an economic trader, an economic investor that they want to keep good relations with. They don't want to get into a confrontation with China over. So 
the sanctions by the United States are seen to a certain extent as being hypocritical and U.S. justifications for those are seen as being excessive and simplistic. So uh, one other question that's been floated around a lot lately is whether the Taiwanese military is up to the task of defending Taiwan and whether U.S. policy, uh, you know, which has included arming Taiwan significantly, but arming them with a lot of high end uh, weapon systems and things like tanks, uh, F-16 fighters, you know, a lot of high end expensive capabilities. Uh, should that policy change? There's been evidence that it might be changing a bit already. What are your thoughts here? The policy by the Taiwanese or by the U.S. or both? The, well, both are the are the Taiwanese ready, and is our policy helping or hurting that overall uh, Taiwanese ability to defend itself? Well, I think the United States has long faced a, a real dilemma with Taiwan because it wants to assist Taiwan and sell Taiwan armaments that it believes are important for Taiwan's defense. Um, defense contractors in the United States, of course, want very much to sell Taiwan all kinds of military systems, uh, whether Taiwan needs it or not. And, and so you've got that kind of impetus within the United States, both financial and strategic or political. But at the same time, you've got a Taiwan that is itself kind of, well, there's several things that go on. Taiwan has been dominated for years by a, a services kind of perspective that has given an inordinate amount of influence to the Taiwan army, has also leaned in the direction of one service or another, depend upon who's the chairman of the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs at the time, um, has not really invested as much as it should in resilience, in hardening, in really making itself into what's called a porcupine, a, a, a really hard, hard um, thing for China to swallow. It has focused on more advanced fighter aircraft, even though Taiwan's air bases could be pummeled with missiles and shut down for a certain period of time or prolonged shutdown in a conflict. It's focused on um, some types of naval platforms that aren't particularly useful. It needs anti-ship missiles. It needs to have uh, hardening, as I said, it needs to have a much more capable army with a larger reserve force that is able to contest any kind of Chinese landing on the island. And Taiwan is not showing the determination and the willingness to really pursue those kinds of capabilities that would reassure the United States that it's doing what it should be doing. And this is for one reason why in, a, in, in this bill, in one of the many bills in the Congress about China and Taiwan, that, that the, it states that the assistance that the United States provides to Taiwan should be conditioned on Taiwan increasing its defense capabilities. Now, that's a very weak condition because, I mean, the Taiwanese could increase them by one Taiwan dollar, and that would satisfy the condition. They need to do much, much more than that. And the United States should specify what they should be doing in consultation with Taiwan and not just simply sell them whatever they think they say they need at a certain time. Or if they don't sell enough, if they don't ask for enough, that they should just, the United States should just throw up their hands and say, well, we tried. I think that Taiwan needs to understand if it really wants to maintain security, it needs to be able to 
establish itself as not an independent security actor because it can't defend itself indefinitely against a determined Chinese attack, but it has to be able to convey the confidence that it can hold on long enough and would do so against a Chinese attack so that the United States should be able to intervene effectively to be able to counter that. But at the same time, Taiwan also needs to recognize that moving itself politically further in the direction of closer state-to-state type relations with Taiwan and the United States, with the United States, does not serve its interests. It will not make Taiwan more secure if it is seen by Beijing as part of an overall strategy of Taiwan permanent separation or independence with U.S. backing. As I said before, if you have that as a, as a clear belief on the part of the Chinese, and they see the United States building up its military uh, to try to defend Taiwan, then we're off to the races. Then we're into a conflict with China. As you were talking about some of the Taiwanese uh, military choices and some of the things they've acquired and implicitly some of the doctrines that follow from that, I I, I was thinking of uh, Barry Posen's book, Sources of Military Doctrine, which basically argues, you know, that that militaries have certain tendencies that are kind of predicted a bit by organization theory uh, to try to increase their budgets, increase their power, buy things that give them lots of autonomy and and cool toys. Uh, And that what has to happen is when the international system gets dangerous enough, civilian leadership steps in and forces uh, the militaries to do what they really ought to do. You know, a really infamous example he gives is that that Bomber Command in Britain wanted to really shut down fighters uh, right before the Battle of Britain when they were such a crucial capability. So what this makes me think of is how good is civilian civil military relations in Taiwan if Taiwan is under this increasing threat and the Taiwanese military is building uh, a military that is great from an organizational perspective, but not so great from a defend Taiwan perspective? Well, I think it shows that to a certain extent that Taiwan military civilian relations are just not where they need to be. That that, that the uh, Taiwan government is not really um, motivating the Chinese, the Taiwanese people, excuse me, to understand the kind of situation they face and what is required. Tsai Ing-wen has attempted to do this, but at the same time, um, the United States has increased its level of support for, for Taiwan. Many Taiwanese look at this problem and they see the danger of a threat from China, but they don't really believe that the Chinese would actually use force. I don't think many Taiwanese, Taiwan residents really believe that China would sacrifice the kind of economic relationship that they have with Taiwan. And sure, Taiwan should not declare formal independence, but nonetheless, we need to be pretty close to the United States and the Chinese are not really going to attack anyway. So why are we really spending all this money and and, and, and all this money going to the United States and defense contractors in the U.S.? on something that really is not that likely to happen and that both sides are really trying to prevent. So why should we be um, getting all the cost or taking in all the cost of this kind of a situation? And, and that's a bad situation to be in. And then the military itself 
um, I think does not have enough clear-eyed focus on what is needed in terms of really improving Taiwan's defense capabilities. I think some people in the Taiwan military understand this clearly, but not enough. And they certainly don't have enough influence in the Taiwan public or over the Taiwan government to be able to get approval for the kind of defense budgets that they would need to have to have a more credible security situation uh, for the island. One of the things that China did in the wake of the Pelosi visit is that they announced they'd be suspending climate talks with the United States uh, over this. And that gets to, I think, a, a bigger question, which is how should climate factor into the U.S. approach to China? I know this is something that a number of folks have started talking about. You know, can we have a confrontational relationship with China and, uh, you know, address this kind of growing global crisis? Uh, or are we kind of going to have to pick one or the other? How should we be thinking about this? Well, I don't think we should say one or the other, but I do believe very much that the United States, the United States talks a lot about China as being an existential threat. I shouldn't. U.S. Some U.S. officials, people in Washington, <clears throat> speak about it, characterize it in this way. Leading U.S. politicians, others, they they talk about China as an existential threat. I think that is a exaggeration. I've written about this. I don't think that China poses what you would call a true existential threat to the United States. But I think if you want to talk about a near existential threat in terms of totally up, upending our economic situation, creating enormous social strife and problems domestically, climate change is on a much higher level than the threat that China poses. Climate change poses a threat to the United States that is near existential, if not existential, and that it needs to have cooperation and meaningful dialogue, meaningful interactions with the other major emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, which is China. And for China, I just said this today to a Chinese official, China cutting off its climate dialogue with the United States as a reaction to the Taiwan situation is understandable. And, I, and, I, and I've long made the argument that you can't simply isolate the climate issue from these security problems, that the Chinese will not simply do that, that they will not just accept whatever it is that they think the United States is doing to threaten them and continue having climate dialogue with the US, that they won't do that. And this action by them has shown that they won't do that. But I do think that if they sustain this over time, it doesn't serve their interests that at some point they're going to need to have a more meaningful dialogue with the United States on climate. But the U.S. also has to put itself in a position where that dialogue becomes more likely, more possible. I think John Kerry is fighting an uphill battle to a great extent within the administration to try and get some real traction on climate issues uh, with the PRC. And uh, he hasn't had much luck in that because the overarching issue for the United States is the existential threat that China poses and the security issues that, that are now multiplying in the U.S. view across all dimensions of U.S.-China relations. One closing question that we like to ask all of our guests, what's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody 
who wants to follow in your footsteps professionally? <laughs> when, who wants to follow my footsteps? The first bit of advice is don't do it. <laughs> my, my, my second, my second advice would probably be just try and follow follow policy issues as closely as you can. Read, 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 read on the policy histories, the negotiating diplomatic histories, the military histories of great power interactions, and. Develop your own point of view on these issues. Don't just accept whatever the latest book is that comes out. Um, get a critical perspective analytically on these issues, and then get as much um, as much credentials as you can in the academic world, or in in some in the policy world within the U.S. government or within other policy organizations that shows that you're a serious policy person who's very interested in these questions and is very knowledgeable about these issues and hope that the brakes will break in your direction. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Swain. Uh, we've been speaking with Michael Swain of the Quincy Institute about Taiwan and U.S.-China relations. Thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight and have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much, John.